Dear parents, this is an SVM podcast to inculcate a reading habit in your child. This initiative will help your child develop both listening and reading skills. To make the best effect of it, it is suggested to use headphones. Thank you. students kindly open up your english course book and turn to page number 127 and now for better concentration kindly glide your finger across the text as i read the adventures of the three students if you happen to see the question paper for your exam the day before the exam what would you do Would you use the information secretly to prepare for your exam, or would you tell your teacher about it and seek her advice? The characters in the story are Sherlock Holmes, who is a private detective; Dr. John Watson, who is a friend of Holmes; Mr. Hilton Holmes, a lecturer at St. Luke's College; Bannister, who is a butler to Mr. Holmes; and Gilchrist, a student and an athlete. Scene one. A living room. Watson and Holmes are seated around the fireplace reading. Mr. Hilton Holmes knocks and enters. He is clearly upset. Holmes, I trust, Mr. Holmes, that you can spare me a few hours of your valuable time. We have had an awful incident at the college, St. Luke's, and I am at loss about what to do. Holmes, being disinterested. I am very busy just now, and I desire no distractions. I should much prefer that you call the police. Sounds. No, no, my dear sir. Such a course is impossible. It is essential to avoid a scandal. Your discretion is as well known as your powers of deduction, and you are the one who can help me. I beg you, Mr. Holmes, to do what you can. Holmes shrugs his shoulders. Sounds. I must explain to you, Mr. Holmes, that tomorrow is the examination for a scholarship at the college. I am one of the examiners. Like in any examination, it would be an advantage if the candidate could see the examination paper in advance. For this reason, great care is taken to keep the paper a secret. Today, about three o'clock, the proofs of the paper arrive from the printers. Are to read it over carefully, because the text must be absolutely correct. At four thirty. I left the proofs upon my desk and went for tea to a friend's room. Watson, how long were you away, Miss Soames? I was absent for more than an hour. As I approached my door, I was amazed to see a key in it. First, I imagined that I had left my own there, but on feeling in my pocket, I found that my key was safe—the only duplicate which exists. Is that which belongs to my servant Bannister, an honest man who has looked after my room for ten years. The moment I looked at my table, I was aware that someone had rummaged through my papers. The proof was in three pages. I had left them all together. Now, I found one of them lying on the floor, one on the side table near the window, and the third was where I had left it. Holmes, getting interested in the tale. 
the first page on the floor, the second near the window, the third where you left it. Soames, exactly Mr. Holmes. Holmes, pray continue your very interesting statement. Soames, I found out that the key was indeed banisters, that he had entered my room to know if I wanted tea and that he had very carelessly left the key in the door when he came out. For an instant, I imagined that Bannister had taken the liberty of examining my paper. Watson, well, did he? Soames, he denied any knowledge of it. He was very upset by the incident that had nearly fainted when we found that the papers had been tampered with. I gave him some medicine and left him collapse in a chair. Holmes, I see. Soames, the alternative is that someone passing had seen the key in the door and had entered to look at my papers. The scholarship is a large sum of money and a dishonest student might try to gain an advantage over his fellows. Holmes, what did you do next, Mr. Soames? Soames, I made a careful examination of the room. I soon saw that the intruder had left over traces of his presence too. On the table near the window were several stretched from a pencil which had been sharpened. A broken tip of the lead was lying there too. Holmes, excellent fortune, has been your friend. Storms, this was not all. I have a new writing table with a fine surface of red leather. I found a clean cut and it about three inches long. Not only this, but on the table I found a small bit of black clay with specks of something which looks like sawdust in it. You see, either I must find the person responsible or else the examination must be postponed until new papers are prepared and the latter would become a scandal. I desire to settle the matter discreetly. Holmes, I shall be happy to look into it. Rising and putting on his overcoat, had anyone visited you in your room after the paper came to you? Soames. Yes, young Dolathras, a student, came in to ask me some questions about the examination. Holmes. For which he entered the room, while the paper were on your table? Soames. Yes, but they were rolled up. Watson. But might be recognized as proofs. Soames. Possibly. Holmes. Did anyone know that these proofs would be there? Soames. No one saved the printer. Holmes, did this man Bannister know? Soames, no, certainly not. No one knew. Holmes, where is Bannister now? Soames, he was very ill. Poor fellow, I left him collapse in the chair. I was in such a hurry to come to you. Holmes, you left your door open? Soames, I locked up the papers first. Watson, then unless all the thrust recognized the role as being proofs, the man who tempered with them came upon them accidentally without knowing that they were there. Soames. So it seems to me. Holmes. Smiling. Well, let us go round, Watson. Mr. Soames. We are at your disposal. And they all exit. Scene 2. The study of the tutor. There are doors on either end of the room. The left one leads into the room from outside and the right one leads to Mr. Soames' bedroom. There is a long, low, lattice window on the wall at the right corner of the stage. There is also a small desk and a chair by the window. 
There's a big desk in the center of the room with chairs around it. Holmes, Watson and Soames enter through the left door. Holmes looking around. Your servant seems to have recovered. Did you say you left him in a chair? Which chair? Soames. Just swing to the window. By the window there. Holmes. Walking to the window. I see. Near this little table. We can see the courtyard through this window. Of course. What has happened is very clear. The man entered and took the papers, sheet by sheet, from the central table. He carried them over to the window table because from there he could see if you came across the courtyard and so could escape in time. Soames. But he could not. I entered by the side gate. Holmes. Ah, that's good. Well, anyhow. That was in his mind. Let me see the three pages. Soames unlocks a drawer, takes out three pages and hands them over to Holmes. Well, he carried over the first one and he copied it. It would have taken him at least 15 minutes, not less. Then he tossed it down and seized the next. When he returned unexpectedly, he had no time to replace the papers. He was in a hurry to get away. Did you hear anyone running away as you entered? Thoughtfully, no, I can't say I did. Holmes, I see. Well, he wrote so furiously that he broke his pencil and had, as you observe, to sharpen it again. Now for the central table. Picking up a small black pellet from the table. Is this the black doughy mass you spoke of? It is roughly pyramidical in shape and hollowed out. There appear to be grains of sawdust in it, like you said, and the cut. Tracing the cut on the table with his fingers, a positive tear I see. It began with a thin scratch and ended in a jacked hole. Looking up at the right door and walking to it. Where does this door lead to? Sounds. To my bedroom. Homes. Have you been in it since your adventure? Soames. No, I came straight away for you. Holmes. I should like to have a glance round. Perhaps you will kindly wait a minute until I have examined the floor. Holmes exits through the right door. The voice of Sherlock Holmes is heard off stage while Soames and Watson wait for him on stage. What a charming old-fashioned room. I see nothing on the floor though. What about this curtain? You hang your clothes behind it? If anyone were forced to conceal himself in this room, he must do it there. Since the bed is too low and the wardrobe too shallow, no one there, I suppose. Halloa! What's this? Holmes comes back onto the stage holding another black clay pellet between his fingers. Holmes. Your visitor seems to have left traces in your bedroom as well as in your study, Mr. Soames. Here is a small pyramid of black putty-like stuff, exactly like the one upon the table of the study. Sherlock holds it out on his open palm for the other two to see. Soames, but what could he have wanted there? Holmes, I think it is clear enough. You came back unexpectedly and so he had no time to escape. What could he do? He rushed into your bedroom to conceal himself. Soames, surprised. 
Good gracious, Mr. Holmes. Do you mean to tell me that all the time I was talking to Bannister in this room, the man was hiding in the next room? Holmes, so it was. I understand you have three students who live here. In a few words, could you describe the character of these boys? Soames, on the lowest of the three floors lives Gilchrist, a fine scholar and athlete. He plays in the rugby team and the cricket team for the college and got many medals for the hurdles and the long jump. He's a fine fellow. Watson, was his father Sir Javis Gilchrist, the one who lost his wealth? Soames, yes, but the boy is hardworking and industrious. He will do well. On the second floor is Dolathras. He's a quiet fellow, steady and methodical. He's a good student. The top floor belongs to Miles McLaren. He's brilliant when he chooses to work. One of the brightest students of the university, but he is unruly and unprincipled. He has been lazy all this term and he must dread the examination. Holmes, I see now, Mr. Soames. Let's have a look at your show and Bannister. Soames rings a bell and Bannister enters, looking nervous. Soames, Mr. Holmes and Miss, Mr. Watson are investigating this unhappy business, Bannister. Holmes, I understand that you left your key in the door. Bannister, yes, sir. Holmes, wasn't it extraordinary that you should do this on the wedding day when there were these papers inside? Bannister, it was most unfortunate, sir, but the same thing has happened at other times. Holmes, when did you enter the room? Bannister, it was about half past four. That is Mr. Soames' tea time. When I saw that he was absent, I withdrew at once. Holmes, did you look at these papers on the table? Bannister, no, sir, certainly not. Holmes, when Mr. Soames returned and called for you, you were very disturbed. Bannister, yes, sir, such a thing has never happened during the many years that I have been here. I nearly fainted, sir. Holmes, so I understand. Where were you when you began to feel bad? Bannister. Where was I, sir? Why here, near the door, pointing to the left door. Holmes, that's curious. When you felt faint, you walked to the other end of the room and sat down in that chair near the window. Why did you pass these other chairs? Bannister, I don't know, sir. It didn't matter to me where I sat. Soames, I really don't think he knew much about it, Mr. Holmes. He was looking very bad, quite ghastly. Holmes, you stayed here when your master left? Bannister, only for a minute or so. Then I locked the door and went to my room. Holmes, thank you, that will do. Oh, one more word. You have not mentioned to any of the three gentlemen you attend to that anything is amiss. Bannister, no sir, not a word. Holmes, very good. Thank you, Bannister. And Bannister exits. Holmes, now Mr. Soames, can you tell me the exact height of your students? Soames, I cannot say precisely, but Miles McLaren is about 5 foot 6, I suppose. Dolathras is shorter than him. Gilchrist is much taller than both of them, about 6 feet, I would say. I don't see why that is important, Mr. Holmes. Holmes, that is very important. He paces up and down a few times, thinking. And now, Mr. Soames, I wish you good night.
Mr. Holmes being anxious. Good gracious, Mr. Holmes, tomorrow is examination. I must take some definite action tonight. I cannot allow the examination to be held if one of the papers has been tampered with. Holmes, put your mind at ease, Mr. Soames. By morning tomorrow, we will have a way out of your difficulties. Goodbye. Soames, disappointed. Good night, Mr. Holmes. Holmes and Watson exit through the left door and Soames slowly goes into the bedroom. Exactly like the previous day. Mr. Soames is seated at the center table reading but is very obviously preoccupied. Watson and Holmes enter through the left door. Soames in relief. Good morning, Mr. Holmes. Thank heavens that you have come. I fear that you have given up in despair. What am I to do? Should the examination proceed? Holmes. Yes, let it proceed by all means. Soames. But this rascal, Holmes, he will not compete. Watson, being surprised, you have formed a conclusion. Holmes, yes, my dear Watson, I have solved the mystery. Soames, but what fresh evidence could you have got? Holmes, aha, I turned myself out of bed at six in the morning. I have something to show for it. Look at that. He holds out his hand. Watson. More black to we clay? Holmes, precisely, so it's a free argument that wherever this clay came from could be the source of the clay found on the table and in the bedroom. And eh, Watson? Watson says, certainly. Holmes, now, Mr. Soames, kindly summon Bannister. Soames rings the bell and Bannister enters. Holmes, kindly close the door now, Bannister. Will you please tell us the truth about yesterday's incident? Bannister, turning pale with fear. I have told you everything, sir. Holmes says, nothing to add. Bannister, nothing at all, sir. Holmes, well then, I must make some suggestions to you. When you sat down on the chair yesterday, did you do so in order to conceal some object which would have shown who had been in the room? Bannister, being terrified, no, sir, certainly not. Holmes, it's only a suggestion. I frankly admit that I'm unable to prove it. But it seems probable enough since you released the man who was hiding in that bedroom. Bannister licking his lips. There was no man, sir. Holmes. Ah, that's a pity, Bannister. Up to now you may have spoken the truth, but now I know that you have lied. Bannister with defiance. There was no man, sir. Holmes. In that case, you can give us no further information. Holmes turning to Soames. Now, Soames, will you please call Mr. Gilchrist? Soames exits through the left door. Sherlock turning to Bannister again. Would you please remain in the room? Stand over there near the bedroom door. Bannister does so. They wait for a few moments. Soames and Gilchrist enter through the left door. Gilchrist glances at Bannister in dismay. Holmes, now Mr. Gilchrist, can we be perfectly frank with each other and no one need ever know one word of what passes between us? We want to know, Mr. Gilchrist, how you, an honorable man, ever came to commit such an action as that of yesterday. Gilchrist cast a look full of reproach at Bannister. Bannister, no, no, Mr. Gilchrist, I never said a word, never one word. 
Holmes, no, but you have now, Gilchrist, so you must confess. Gilchrist falls on his knees beside the table and sobs. Holmes, come, come, it's human to err. Perhaps it would be easier for you if I were to tell Mr. Soames what occurred and you can check me where I am wrong. Gilchrist nods at Holmes. Holmes, yesterday when I examined the rooms, I realized that the one who entered this room knew that the papers were there. How did he know? When I studied the window, I understood that if the papers were left on the central table, then any tall person passing by the window could see what papers they were. Watson, when Mr. Soames described Gilchrist as being above six feet tall, you knew it was him? Holmes, that and the fact that he's a long jumper, but I need to collect proof, which is what I did this morning. Watson, the black clay. Holmes, yes. What happened was this, Gilchrist had been practicing the jump all afternoon at the athletic grounds. He returned carrying his jumping shoes, which have several sharp spikes. As he passed your window, he saw the pages on your table and guessed what they were. Then as he passed your door on his way to his room, he saw the key on the door. On an impulse, he entered the room to see if there were indeed the proofs. When he saw the pages, he gave in to temptation. He, he put his shoes on the table and something else on the chair. What was it you put on that chair? Gilchrist. Gloves. Holmes looking triumphantly at Bannister. He put his gloves on the chair and he took the proofs sheet by sheet to copy them. The rest we already know. Mr. Soames returned unexpectedly by the side gate and there was no way for him to escape. He forgot his gloves, but he grabbed his shoes and darted into the bedroom. You observe that the scratch on that table is slight at one side but deepens in the direction of the bedroom door. The tear on the leather table proves that the shoes had been pulled in that direction. He hid in the bedroom. The dirt around the spikes fell on the table and in the bedroom. I went to the long jump pit this morning and massed the clay and sawdust to the pit. Have I told the truth, Mr. Gilchrist? Gilchrist standing up. Yes, sir, it is true. Soames, good heavens, have you nothing to add? Gilchrist, yes, sir, I have a letter here, which I wrote to you early this morning after a restless night. It was before I knew that I had been found out. Here it is, sir. It says I have decided not to take the examination. Soames, I am indeed pleased to hear that you did not intend to take advantage of the situation. But why did you change your mind? Gilchrist pointed to Bannister. There is a man who set me on the right path. Holmes, come now Bannister. It's clear that the only thing you could have let this young man out. Since only you were left in the room and must have locked the door, when you went out, tell us the reasons for your action. Bannister, it's simple enough, sir. I was a butler to old Sir Jabez Gilchrist before I came to work here. But I never forgot my old employer. He was good to me. I watched his son all I could for the sake of the old days. When I came into this room yesterday, the very first thing I saw was Mr. Gilchrist and gloves lying in that chair. So I pretended to faint and sat down in the chair near the window so Mr. Soames would turn away and not see them on the chair. When he came to see you, my poor young master came out of his hiding and confessed it all to me. Wasn't it natural, sir, that I should save him and wasn't it natural also that I should try to speak to him as his father would have done and make him understand that he could not profit by such a deed? Can you blame me, sir? 
Soames, Hartley. No, indeed. Well, Soames, I think we have cleared your little problem up. Come, Watson. And to Gilchrist, he says, as to you, sir, I trust that a bright future awaits you. For once you have fallen low, let's see in the future how high you can rise. This was an adaptation from the original by Arthur Conan Doyle. Good morning students, kindly open your English course book and turn to page number 145. Now for better concentration, glide your finger across the text as I read. Miracles by Walt Whitman A miracle refers to a wonderful event or act that seems impossible and that is believed to be caused by God. Here is a famous American poem that was first published in 1856. If we are observant, we will notice that there are miracles happening in our life and in the world around us. Why? Who makes much of a miracle? As to me, I know of nothing else but miracles. Whether I walk the streets of Manhattan or dart my sight over the roofs of houses toward the sky, or wade with naked feet along the beach just in the edge of the water, or stand under trees in the woods, or talk by day with anyone I love, or sleep in the bed at night with anyone I love, or sit at the table at dinner with the rest, or look at strangers opposite me riding in the car, or watch honeybees busy around the hive of a summer forenoon, or animals feeding in the fields, or birds, or the wonderfulness of insects in the air, or the wonderfulness of the sundown, or of stars shining so quiet and bright, or the exquisite, delicate, thin curve of the new moon in spring. These with the rest, one and all, are to me miracles. The whole referring, yet each distinct and in its place. To me, every hour of the light and dark is a miracle. Every cubic inch of space is a miracle. Every square yard of the surface of the earth is spread with the same. Every foot of the inferior swarms with the same. To me, the sea is a continual miracle. The fishes that swim, the rocks, the motion of the waves, the ship with men in them, what stranger miracles are there. students kindly open your English course book and turn to page number 121 for better concentration glide your finger across the text as I read uncovering the coast of Nancy Drew have you ever read a Nancy Drew book if you recall Nancy Drew is a girl detective in an American mystery fiction series created by publisher Edward Strait Mayer in 1930 as a female counterpart to his Hardy Boys series, who actually wrote the Nancy Drew books, remain a mystery. Till, what would you do if you discovered a secret message scribble inside a library book? And what if it was a clue to a mystery you were trying to solve? 
In 1963, a young library worker named Geoffrey Lapin discovered something mysterious about a favorite book detective, Nancy Drew. Library records stated that no one knew who had written the stories about her. The author's name on the book read Caroline Keene, but some people said there was no such person. The only printed fact Geoffrey could find said Caroline Keene, real name unknown. Then Geoffrey found a clue. A message inside a Baltimore library book. Right next to the name Caroline Keene, someone had penciled another name, Mildred Wirt. Next to that, the person had written another clue, See American Woman, 1939-14. Who was Mildred Wirt? It seemed as if Geoffrey's old chum Nancy Drew was whispering in his ear. He had to solve this mystery. Quickly, he located the book American Woman. What he found there must have made him catch his breath. Someone named Mildred Wood Benson, her married name, had written more than 130 children's books, and she had used pseudonyms. Was Caroline Keene one of the made-up author's names she had used? If so, why would she hide her true identity? What would Nancy look for next? Fingerprints. An author writing style is like a fingerprints. She couldn't hide her style. and no one else could duplicate it exactly if chofri found mildred's other books he could compare them with the nancy drew books coming through antique stores and musky bookshelves chofri said he had truly found a gold mine every book he read by mildred was filled with words pictures similar to those he had read in nancy drew books secret passageways country roads and roadsters wound their way through the books he found just as they did in the popular series it was as if nancy was having adventures under the names of other characters and mildred had written those adventures using different author names but why only mildred could reveal this secret joffrey arranged an interview the moment they met he felt as if he were talking to nancy drew herself as a long time reporter for the toledo blade mildred had detecting in her blood just as nancy did Like Nancy Mildred broke moods of what people thought women should do. She was the first woman to graduate from the University of Iowa School of Journalism. In 1927 she received the first master's degree the school ever gave. Her adventurous life included becoming a pilot and a champion driver and a swimmer. After sharing these details about her life Mildred confirmed what Geoffrey suspected. She was the original Caroline Keene. When Mildred was a college student, she had heard of a writing job with the Edward Straitmayer Publication Syndicate. Straitmayer had decided to form a sort of factory to write children's books. His idea was to hire writers to ghostwrite books under made-up names. This way, he could hire various writers to author a series from his own story ideas. He would be able to publish many books quickly. And if one writer quit, It would not mean the end of a series. Straitmayer offered Mildred the job of ghostwriting a new series about a girl named Nancy Drew. She accepted. She wanted to give readers a girl heroine who was different from any other at that time. Nancy would love to explore and find adventures in her everyday life. She would be intelligent and have a new kind of freedom about her. Mildred wanted readers to feel as if they were sharing Nancy's adventures. and to dream about adventures 
of their own. At first, straight men were disappointed in Mildred's Nancy. He thought she was too novy, but the books were huge. As Caroline Keen Mildred wrote 23 of the first 30 Nancy Drew mysteries. After she left the company, other authors, including Straight Mayor's daughter Harriet Adams, took over the series. Mildred was sworn to secrecy. For most of her life, Mildred kept the secret of her role in writing the Nancy Drew books. Even when her daughter came home from school upset because no one believed her mom had written the books, Mildred kept silent. Then, in 1980, Geoffrey Lapin heard about a court case involving the publishers of the Nancy Drew mysteries. Harriet Adams was claiming to be the one and only Caroline Keene. Geoffrey told Mildred, and she appeared in court to identify the work releases that proved her authorship. The ghost of Nancy Drew was uncovered. Mildred Wood Benson lived to be 96. She wrote many other children's books during her lifetime, as well as her own newspaper column. To many Nancy Drew fans, she will always be remembered as a real Caroline Keene. This story was written by Pamela Depeyron.